0: That's me right here, right before I went to prison. This is in the cemetery. They were burying my friend. He was 16 years old when he was murdered. These are the guys I ran with when I was 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. So they were burying one of my friends, and all three of the guys on the top are all dead now. They were also murdered. Gang violence.
1: That's Gilbert Bayo speaking in the summer of 2020 to a group of middle school kids in the farm worker community of Watsonville, California. He's traveled a long and twisting road to arrive at this moment. When I met Gilbert, he was in prison serving a life sentence, and it seemed unlikely he would ever come home. But the story of how he got there and how he came to this moment in this middle school is also the story of how we respond to children and families in crisis. How our criminal justice system and child and family services can often perpetuate more harm than they prevent. As we began work on this project, Gilbert called me from Soledad Prison in early 2019 to tell me the incredible news. Against so many odds, he had just been approved for parole. He was elated, but also very nervous about all that his new life would entail.
2: What am I going to see? Who's going to walk me out? What exactly does it look like? Are they going to just open a fan? Is the officer going to just say, "Okay, you're free. There's no more supervision. Go ahead. Because everywhere in here, they open something with a key, and then I'm either locked on one end of it or the other side of it. That constant has been going on for 21 years, and now they're going to open it up and just let me go. There's part of me that feels like there's something wrong. I'm not supposed to be right here. For a long time, it was more of a dream like, man, I hope I could get there one day. I hope I could get there. And now it's about to happen.
1: Welcome to Season 2 of Grey Area. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez. For this entire season, we'll follow the story of Gilbert Bale. Gilbert was among thousands of children raised in the shadow of the criminal justice system. Young people who have spent decades in prison and are returning to our communities every day. This is the story of a system that failed in its premise to rehabilitate and make us all safer. But it's also the story of men like Gilbert, who took their rehabilitation into their own hands and are making revolutionary changes happen in themselves and in the system that turned its back on them. Alongside Gilbert, formerly incarcerated people are now going back into the state's prisons. They're creating the rehabilitative communities that they've proved actually work. And it's the story of Gilbert as a young Latino from East LA who grew up around gangs, drugs, and domestic violence. The crime that sent him to prison was a drive-by shooting intended to avenge a friend's murder. No one died or was even injured. But because of California's anti-gang laws of the 1990s, Gilbert was sentenced to life. This was a time when thousands of young people of color, even children, were declared monsters and super predators. Thousands were locked up for decades, many, like Gilbert, for life. Gilbert lived more than 20 years in prison, believing he would die there. But when California recently reformed its sentencing laws, he was suddenly offered a life after his life sentence. Over these 10 episodes, we'll listen in as he helps make history inside the California prison system and is released to reclaim his life in the midst of a global pandemic, and nationwide racial justice uprisings. On a recent Saturday afternoon, Gilbert gives me a tour of his old neighborhood, East LA. Right now we're in the Boyle Heights district. It's a place rich in culture and was home to notable people from actor Anthony Quinn to Father Greg Boyle, the beloved founder of Homeboy Industries, to the writers Oscar Ceta Acosta and Josefina Lopez. It's been the setting for powerful films, like Walkout, Real Women Have Curves, and the Netflix series, Pentified. But to Gilbert, East Los Angeles is home.
2: This, and this is the park, Dolores Mission's right here on the right. They tore the projects down, now they built, I guess what you would say, condos or something? And this is Mariachi Square. And if you look around, you'll see Somos Boyle Heights letting you know where you're at. Look at Mariachi standing on the square trying to get hired. Look at all the murals.
0: Someone's oil mate.
2: You'll see most of the signs are Spanish. They're going to be selling stuff every corner. You go. But this is home basically, you know, this is when you grew up, this is all you know, a lot of people's families, Mexican families that first came, you know, leaving Mexico during the revolution, Mexican revolution or revolt, they came here, they landed here in East LA. And that went on for, you know, over a hundred years. I'm over here and it feels like home to them. A lot of the infamous gangs that have been around since the beginning of, of gang history, as far as in California, these are the oldest, at least, you know, quote unquote Hispanic gangs. Um, this is where they get their start from.
1: The street kids in East LA weren't the only ones joining gangs. As far back as the 1970s, some members of the los angeles county sheriff's department had their own gangs with special tattoos and names like the tasmanian devils the banditos and here in boyle heights the cavemen but east l.a wasn't just a hotbed of street crime and police misconduct it was also in the forefront of the growing chicano civil rights movement
2: you know a lot of people that live here they might not even know how much history there is in the place they live i know for me Growing up is always encouraged, like, be proud of who you are, where you come from. But you don't realize until you leave. And then they ask questions about, like, hey, is it really like that? How is East LA? Like, you know, I want to go there one day. And and, then you're like, man, people know about us? Like, we grew up trying to get out of here, you know? Like, God.
1: In fact, East LA was home to what's been called the largest high school protest in U.S. history. It was memorialized in the 2006 film Walkout by Edward James Olmos. In 1968, students from five local high schools walked out of their classrooms to protest the discrimination they faced every day. Just a couple of years later, the first documented deputy gang appeared in East LA. It was 1971 and a group of mainly white deputies called themselves the Little Devils. As similar groups sprang up in sheriff's stations around LA County, a federal judge called one of them a neo-Nazi white supremacist gang operating within the department. While their ethnic makeup has changed over the years, these deputy gangs are still functioning today. We'll get more into that in a later episode.
0: See, drugs, gangs in prison, they're not our culture. That's something that destroys our culture. That's something that destroys families. That's something that destroys you, most of all. It destroys you, man. Those three things are very powerful, but not as powerful as this is. Common reasons why you join gangs and drop out of school. reasons why I join a gang, I fall under all of these categories. Violence at home and in my community. Drugs in the home or in the community. Raised by single parent. Low income. Lack of positive role models. Teenage pregnancy. Bullying. Lack of supervision. Fear, something we don't, especially boys, don't talk about or don't get raised to talk about. Movies, music, television. Social media, trying to fit in with the wrong crowd. And one of the big ones, one of the big ones that they ignore, a lot of uh, uh, people ignore is the trauma.
1: So tell me, tell me about your brother who was older. What was it like growing up? How much, you know, were you close? What was it like for you as kids?
2: So I'm the oldest of four siblings, Uh, my brother, Manuel, he was the baby. He was the youngest. Um, We grew up uh, living together until I was about the age of eight, and that's when we had our encounter with Child Protective Services with the LA County sheriffs, and we were removed from home. We lasted in court all the way to, I was probably 16, 15 years old, going in and out of court, you know, child, child court in Alley County. I think it's important part of our story as a family because witnessing domestic violence, physical violence at that age, it's terrifying. Even being removed from home is it's very traumatic and when they do the removal we went in the police car. You know I went to McLaren Hall and they went to you know it was probably some social workers office until they find them temporary uh, foster care parents.
1: Um, Why didn't they find foster care parents for you?
2: From my understanding it was because I had a different father and they want for my safety, they put me there and separated me from my sister and brothers. And because there was four of us, it was hard to find temporary foster care, you know, for for children. I guess three was the max number for them at the time. And, um,
1: how
2: did that feel to you? I guess I was so worried about them. I wasn't worrying about myself. And I didn't know what was going on. I was eight years old. I didn't know what the next day or what was going to happen that day. Like, am I going to go home? Is there? Do I still have a home? Um, who's going to come and get me?
1: Gilbert spent two weeks at McLaren Hall, and for an eight-year-old, it had to have been terrifying. You might have seen McLaren in recent headlines, because a class-action lawsuit has been filed by some survivors. It started after the Great Depression as a home for unwed mothers with STDs, and it later housed polio patients. The place has a long and infamous history of violence, of sexual abuse by staff, and being a tough prison-like environment, even though most kids sent there had not committed any crime. Today, the old McLaren buildings in El Monte, east of Los Angeles, are still surrounded by long, stark walls that make it look more like a prison than a refuge for children in need. Here, podcast producer, Sadia Sanders, interviews McLaren Hall survivor and children's advocate, Andrew Bridge. What was going on that thousands upon thousands of kids wound up there?
3: I've seen hundreds of of kids who have gone through McLaren, who go through the foster care system generally, and it has nothing to do with abuse It is overwhelmingly a product of what is called neglect and that's just a code word in many ways for poverty, for a lack of resources and not for a lack of love, not for a lack of caring, but for struggle. That was the place that you went when there was literally no other place that the Department of Children and Family Services could or frankly in some cases felt like putting it
1: For decades, families complained about overcrowding and abuse to county commissioners who ordered several grand juries to investigate McLaren. Eventually, in 2003, it was permanently shut down.
3: It never let go of its history of violence, of its history of having kids dumped there, and kids who had the greatest needs being put in the very worst place. They knew they would never have one of their own children there, ever. Mm And it was fine, though, to have other people's children there. We always ended up going to my
2: grandma's house. That was home base mm-hmm. for us, you know. We moved all over Alley County. We moved to Seattle for a little bit. My sister was born in Nebraska. Wow. And I was just kind of hoping that I had somewhere to go.
1: From then on, Gilbert never had a stable place to call home. He often lived with his grandmother, but nothing was permanent.
2: Both sides have something negative to say because they're both blaming each other for what's going on and our, our family being being ripped apart. And you know, we hear it. We see it and we have to live in it. There's nowhere else to go. There was nowhere else for me to go at least. Social workers are coming to see me left and right. I get different ones assigned and as soon as they come they're doing, you know, assessments. How do you feel? What do you think? What do you what's going on? Let me go see where you sleep. You know, and it's a stranger telling me this. So, you know, I learned how to tell them yes when I had to and no when I needed to. I learned to block them out of knowing anything that was going on. I got sent to therapy, counseling, and um I hated it. Whenever I was asked, I was like, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to do that. Why would you hate it? Because it felt unnormal. It didn't feel right to me. I, I didn't like being around telling a stranger what was going on in my home. So whenever I went, like I said, I knew what to tell them and what not to tell them, just to get out of there. I was always resisting. I don't want to talk about it. For what? I have to go tell somebody oh, all this horrible stuff that's going on and then walk out and none of it gets solved. All they do is type it all on a paper, give it to the judge, and then I might not have nowhere to go. Cause where do I go next? Growing up as a young kid, like what what do you expect? You know what? Really, what do you expect from that? Not everybody's gonna end up making the bad decisions I made, and I don't blame them for my decisions, but I'm not the only player in this scenario.
1: Throughout this traumatic time, Gilbert always felt a special responsibility to take care of his baby brother, Manny, who was just a toddler when Gilbert was sent to McLaren. Out of all of us, he was the most loving.
2: He was the one that comes and hugs you and, like, kisses you. He would put a song on and he will start dancing and singing. He was real loving, caring, but... Um, That's my memories of him, even as he got like into his teens because the last time I saw him he was, he had barely turned 18.
0: that year. I was 13 years old. I had I I grew up in Los Angeles and the guys in the neighborhood I grew up in kept asking me to join the gang and I kept saying no no I can't, I can't but eventually one day I was hanging out with them they started giving me some alcohol and I started drinking as I kept drinking or I should have said no that one more time I decided to say yes. I got jumped into the gang that day. But see, you don't understand what you got yourself into. Because at that age, you think it's all fun. You watch the TV, you watch, you know, all those fake ideas about what gangs are about, what drugs are about, what prison is about, what juvenile hall is about. It's none of the things people are telling you. See, people only tell you the little, little, little fraction of the truth. And most of the time, even that's a lie. They only tell you like, oh, I was in there hanging out with this person or we were having fun. They don't tell you about all the hurt and the pain and the misery and the loneliness that it causes to you and your family.
2: some people are fortunate man they're young they see all that stuff and they it makes them make all the right decisions because they don't want to be like that i wish i was that that was my brain but there's not that's that wasn't my brain my brain like i took it and ran with it like this is the way it is then i'm gonna get mine and i'm not and i'm willing to make decisions that others may be not willing to make i started getting in a lot of trouble you know, at a young age, and um, eventually led me to juvenile hall. I went to juvenile hall so many times, in and out, in and out, in and out. I got involved with the gang lifestyle, um, which made it worse. And I went to the California Youth Authority for three and a half years.
1: He spent those years learning and developing gang and criminal skills at the Heyman G. Stark Correctional Facility in the desert town of Chino, California. Stark was the largest in the statewide system of youth prisons, known as the California Youth Authority, or YA. It housed young people from ages 12 to 25, convicted of serious crimes. Like kids in the foster care system, these youths are considered wards of the state. Stark became known as a gladiator school where violence was commonplace and sometimes orchestrated by staff. It was a place where young men sought protection in gangs, and some made rising in the criminal ranks their goal. Just like McLaren Hall, Stark has been plagued by abuse, scandals, and lawsuits. A counselor was murdered there in 1996. In 1999, the state's inspector general found that guards used excessive force slammed handcuffed wards into walls, pushed them into cells littered with excrement, and forced kids to take part in Friday night fights with rival gangs. Questionable and experimental psychotropic drugs were tested on wards. Stark was shut down in 2010, and the entire youth authority is now being dismantled under a cloud of scandal and disgrace. After spending his teen years in youth prison, Gilbert's gang was no longer the only thing that mattered to him. By his early 20s, he had a girlfriend, and they decided to go back to school and start a family. It was something Gilbert wanted badly.
2: My daughter, Marlena, was planned, like, let's have a baby. Okay, cool. We planned it out. You know, part of it was getting somewhere to live first. I got that, and then, boom. Here comes the baby. Soon as her mom was pregnant, I stopped smoking tobacco. I stopped hanging out. Less risky things, I could say, but not everything. I did whatever I had to do to, to fulfill what I thought was my role. I kept kind of stepping away from my role in, in the gang. And I was fine with it. There was no pressure, nobody was questioning it. It wasn't like one day I just turned off the switch and I no longer cared about it no more. I've been through a lot with my homeboys. I've been through a lot from the gang I was from. I, I was willing to die and kill for it at that point. So it doesn't just turn off. It wasn't like daughter or this. I just didn't think that way. My consequential thinking just was not there. My belief system, I was still loyal to the gang I was from. But when I started my family, I was trying to, I was playing both sides of the fence. If I have my own family, then I'm the one that's gonna make the decision. I'm gonna be the dad I didn't have. Everything I I thought he could have done for me to maybe have a different life, then maybe I can be that person. I thought, like, I get a job, somewhere to live, I get a savings account, you know, get a car, pay bills, come home every day, maybe have a drink on the weekends, and that would be my success story from where I come from. I'm trying to make these decisions, but at the same time, my loyalties that I had taken on They had also gotten very strong. Stronger than I probably thought. But I also wanted a family. I seen how my sister was with hers. And I always wanted to be back with my sister and brothers. But we were adults now. It was over. That's never going to happen.
1: And then his brother, Manny, was arrested.
2: My brother went to prison before me about a a year. He was fighting a life sentence for attempted murder, gang-related attempted murder. So he was calling me from the county jail, and it was his first time facing something that serious. He didn't really go through the juvenile hall system and all that, but he was a gang member. Um, he got involved with a shooting, and he was facing serious serious prison time. So I was trying to be his big brother and also advise him on how to approach you know, the system, because It's going to eat them up. I'm trying to get them to take a deal that doesn't involve life. Even if it's 15, 20 years, at least you know you're going to come home. In the 90s, the governors got on TV, you know, Pete Wilson, all of them, and said, if you get a life sentence, I will make sure you never come home again.
1: Here's an excerpt from the investigative news service Retro Report. It describes the sentiment in California at the time.
3: In the early 1990s, TV news bombarded viewers with scenes of murder, mayhem, blood and guts. The war on crime, by then 20 years old, seemed lost. New sentencing laws called Three Strikes, You're Out were seen as the answer to the repeat offender menace.
0: When you commit a third violent crime, you will be put away and put away for good. Three strikes and you are out.
3: Crime scholar Frank Zimmering says Americans were angry because despite having put a record number of people in prison, crimes still seemed out of control.
0: What was supposed to deliver people from their crime fears. What was supposed to reduce the homicide rate was the imprisonment cure, and it hadn't worked. So that what happened in the 1990s is the transition from lock them up to throw away the key.
2: That's no secret. Growing up in the neighborhood or or being in the juvenile system or youth authority, we all know that if you get a life sentence, you'll never come home. So that was, uh, that was the last I seen of my brother right before he, he got locked up. He ended up taking a deal, 14 years. Um, he left the county, L.A. County Jail. You know, he was in reception center. Um, and that's when I committed my crime.
1: After his brother Manny's arrest, Gilbert kept trying to step back from the criminal life. But then a rival gang attacked his best friend, Flaco. Flaco was killed in an ambush attack. Three days later, Gilbert's gang set out to take revenge on their enemies. At age 23, Gilbert believed he could be loyal to both his family and his crew. In his view, he and his friends were the protectors of the neighborhood, a band of brothers doing what the police did not to keep their community safe. He talks about it while he drives through the old neighborhood. The night I left to go commit my crime, I really believed that there was
2: no way I could get caught. Like, there was no scenario in my mind, I'm gonna do life in prison, and my daughter's not gonna have her death. That never, those consequences just were not there. I really thought that I was slick enough that I, if I made the plan as long as I, everything went right, it, I was tricking myself because when that split decision, revealed itself to me, I made all the wrong decisions. I was so pumped up, you know, standing there on the street when they pulled out a gun. It was like something else took over me. It was like, get them at all costs. You know, I gotta make them pay for this. Sometimes I felt like, man, you know what? I was heading for death. That was either I was gonna kill somebody with my own hand or somebody was gonna kill me. They were trying to uh, take over streets that were we were supposed to be protecting as our neighborhood, you know? So if they take over your neighborhood, it's like embarrassing to be from that gang. You go around there like, everybody's gonna find out like, oh, they took over their neighborhood or like, they punked them.
1: Gilbert is taking us through the crime scene late at night, showing me what happened. So, they're coming up the street
2: they pull up so their window's up like this it's tinted i'm standing on the street and i can see this guy like this leaning back before they could even fire my homies i was with they fired at the car boom 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 well the car took off we're shooting chasing them it was at least 30 rounds already fired Right here is where we put the clip back in the gun and started shooting all the way down the street. They got away and I knew that car was full of holes, you know, probably no windows. Once they made this left, the shooting was over. Now this is a hangout for the sheriffs. I don't know if it still is, but back in the days, so guess how many cops are all sitting right here in their cop cars, running to their cars to respond to the first shooting. I was coming down this way like 80 miles an hour in a Oldsmobile Delta 88. I yeah, had the door open like this no no seatbelt, I was like this like, hey get ready right here we're gonna jump. Right here they hit me hard, boom oh, It slid and pushed me into that wall. So the door closed back and then I popped it open again. I knew right here it was gonna be hard for them to chase me. I knew I wouldn't make the turn going as fast as I was. I was just hoping the car would stop because it was just sliding. They light me up.
0: Woo! Let's
2: go. I gassed it all away. My co-defendant code was like, hey, let's, let's just let the cops have it. Let, let's just light them up now. Th- that That's a suicide. If you fire one round, there's no coming back from that. You fire a round at a cop, they're now hunting you down to kill you, you know? That's the only way out is die. we to this alley, and the dogs are barking yards so i could hear the helicopter saying on the speaker and i know they had the infrared it stayed right over me and i was like they they, they could see me it's over so now i'm like man just don't get killed now please don't fucking shoot so all i all i wanted was not not to get shot they got me out put me on my stomach cuffed me up pat me down
1: gilbert was back in jail his girlfriend and baby daughter still at home He and his co-defendant thought they wouldn't be there long. After all, there was no witness and, most important, no victim. But there was a gun. Gilbert wanted his friend to toss it when the cops chased them, but he didn't. Police found it, and they matched it to shell casings from the crime scene. California's anti-gang laws allowed prosecutors to charge them both with attempted murder. Gilbert knew that Republican and Democratic governors were vetoing nearly every life prisoner up for parole. And now he was about to face that reality. In our next episode, Gilbert confronts the terror, isolation, and repercussions to his family of going to prison for life. This episode was co-produced by Gilbert Baio and Mara Reynolds. A class action lawsuit by former wards of McLaren is currently in the courts, and survivors have until the end of the year to join in. You can learn more about it and check out all our show notes at grayareapodcast.com. That's Gray with an A. We also have links to the full interview about McLaren Hall by Sadia Sanders and Andrew Bridge, as well as a link to Retro Reports' full video about California's Three Strikes Law 20 years later. The music for this episode is by Crowander, Ketza, Lobo Loco, and Nuisance. Thank you to all the amazing artists at the Free Music Archive, The details are on our website. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhume.org. For Gray Area, this is Julie Reynolds Martinez, and this is season two, After Life.